This morning we are reading from Ruth chapter 1, 1 through 18. Hear God's word. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judea went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the name of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judea. They went into the country of Moab and remained there, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, the name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the women, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me, with the dead, and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Now they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my wombs, womb that you may become that may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more. Also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. This is God's word. Thanks, Gigi. Good morning. My name is Drew Bennett. I'm one of the pastors here at Church of the Redeemer. We're continuing this morning in a series uh, that we've been, that we're in the middle of about halfway through, actually. We've been here uh, for almost six or seven months now. We will be here for the rest of the year walking our way through the Old Testament scriptures, looking at the story that God is telling through these ancient books, these ancient stories. And this morning we come to this very well-known, for for many people, story of this lady named Ruth. Now, 
before we get into the details of, of, of the sermon this morning, I have two, just two, I don't know, what am, what am I trying to say? Two things at the beginning you need to be aware of. The first is uh, that I have one shot, one week to do, a, to do a sermon on this entire book, so we're not going to get into the details, and that's okay. To preach exegetically doesn't mean you have to go verse by verse. It means you take what you're going to say from the meaning of the story. And so we're going to deal with themes. I'm not going to get into the text a whole bunch like we normally do because, again, we have one week uh, to do this. The second thing is, is the problem with preaching is is preaching, by definition, can't be nuanced. Unless you want to be here until 2 o'clock this afternoon. I'm assuming you don't. I don't really either. And so because we have a limited amount of time, it's impossible to, to get to all the nuances of the things that, that, we, that we were trying to say. So this morning I'm going to say some really hard things, uh, it's going to be, but, but it's going to lack nuance. And it can be a little dangerous because without the nuance, you can turn it into moralism or turn some kind of rule that can create unhealthy relationships. And so just be careful of that. And if you have questions about that, find me, uh, email me, text me, whatever, and we can talk about the nuances. We just don't have time to do it this morning in this time, okay? Now, you can tell, looking at this book, you can tell from the very first verse in the book of Ruth that the story uh, the book tells happens, we're told, in the day when the judges rule. So there's a connection to the book of Judges, which we looked at last week. And if you were here, I talked about what the days of the judges were like. They were days of occupation and cruel tyranny from foreign kings, oppressors, days of selfishness and greed, where the phrase we looked at last week, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And there was no sense of community or hospitality or love. So what a great mercy then that to have this story, which teaches us that even in days like the days when the judges ruled, which, quite honestly, are much like the days that we are living in, that there are still people living quiet lives of generosity and love that aren't spectacular. They're just plain, ordinary folk who go about their lives unnoticed by the larger society. But it's through them that God continues to work and to advance his mission of bringing his love and salvation to the whole earth. That's why this book's here. The story goes something like this, if I could summarize it for you. This lady, Naomi, that we meet with here, she's a widow. She and her husbands have two sons. They fled the promised land because there was a famine that came. And they went to live in Moab, just to the east. If you had a map, it's just the Jordan River and the Dead Sea. It's just to the east of the Jordan River and the Dead Sea. It didn't go well there for them. Naomi's husband dies. Then her two sons die. And it ends up just being her and her two daughters-in-law in a time when widows were completely at the mercy of the community because they had no practical way of earning a living for themselves. And so they are destitute in every sense of the word. So Naomi decides to go back home. But before she does this, she knows that the kind thing for her to do is to send her daughter-in-laws back to their father's homes because at least there they could probably find you know a way to make ends meet they could be taken care of and everything would go well for them one of them Orpah does this but the other daughter Ruth after whom the book is named Ruth chooses to stay to help care for her mother-in-law which means we have a book of miracles here in front of us she chooses her mother-in-law isn't that amazing She chooses her mother-in-law over her family, which is remarkable. But when you consider the depth of her sacrifice, it's absolutely stunning. Ruth's love, her commitment to Naomi, what happens is, is it sets off a chain reaction of love that becomes the channel through which God's salvation comes 
not only to Naomi and to Ruth, but the ripple effect of her love, the ripple effect of this act of love that Gigi just read reaches all the way down to you and to me. Because we're told at the end of this book that this unlikely hero, this childless widow, a foreigner, the lowest of the low, at the end of the book we find out she's actually the great-grandmother of the great King David through whom the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, would come. And so the lesson of the book is just this, that the most earth-shattering thing you can do, the most eternally significant thing, if you want to change the world forever, become a person who excels at the work of love. You don't have to be famous. You don't have to be successful. If you really want to count, if you want your life to really matter, then quietly, behind the scenes, in small ways that may seem at the time to be a very little consequence, choose love. Choose generosity. Choose to sacrifice for the sake of others because that's how the kingdom of God comes to earth. And Ruth gives a name to this way of life. The book does. It's called Hesed. It's the theme. And it's what we're going to look at this morning. Hesed love. Now, splash zone in the first two rows because the the Hebrew is actually Chesed. Okay? But for our sake, Hesed will do just fine to spare those in the the first couple of rows up here. Uh, It's a word that describes a life of love and sacrifice. So, for example, in verse 8, if you see there, when Naomi says to Orpah and to Ruth, may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me, that word, deal kindly, is the word hesed. It's a word that combines the ideas of love and loyalty. So it's often translated, and you heard Jonathan say it over and over again in his prayers, steadfast love, or as the Jesus Storybook Bible, which many of us have really fallen in love with, says, God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. I like stubborn love. Or maybe even better, one-way love. So Paul Miller, who's written a book on the book of Ruth, uh, he defines hesed this way. Here's his, and it's printed for you, I think, in your worship folder, isn't it? It's so good, I put it there for you so you could hold on to it and keep it. Here's how Paul Miller, our friend, uh, the, a friend of this church, he, he, he defines this, this word this way. He says, it combines commitment with sacrifice. Hesed is one-way love, love without an exit strategy. When you love with hesed love, you bind yourself to the object of your love no matter what the response is. Your response to the other person is entirely independent of how that person has treated you. Hesed is the opposite of the spirit of the age which says we have to act on our feelings. Hesed says, no, you act on your commitments. The feelings will follow. Love like this is unbalanced, uneven. There's nothing fair about it. Hesed love does not demand recognition or equality. It's uneven. It's one-way love. And that really is the theme of this book. And so it's what we want to look at this morning with the few minutes that we have together. And I want you to see three things about hesed love that, that bear out in this book of Ruth. And again, we're not going to press the details. We're thinking thematically about this entire book, but trying to look through the grid of these first 18 verses And the three points of the sermon are just this this morning. I want us to see first the shape of Hesed love, or excuse me, first the source of Hesed love, then secondly the shape of a a life of Hesed love, and then thirdly the goal or the end or what it produces, the product. So the source and then the shape and then the goal or the product of a life of Hesed love. Those are our three points, and so we'll follow along together as we work our way through the outline first. The source of Hesed love. And I've already referred to this verse from this passage that I have in mind in verse 8. Naomi says to Ruth and to Orpah, May the Lord deal kindly. May the Lord do Hesed, is what that means. May he do Hesed with you 
as you have done with the dead and with me. And so what we see right there in just a little snapshot is that God is a God of Hesed. In fact, Naomi, in the way that she talks with her daughters-in-law about this, Naomi connects the Hesed we do with one another with the hope, the promise that God will do Hesed with us. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Because if you commit yourself to do one-way love, that is, if, if I commit to loving you, no matter what, my love for you is not dependent upon your response, about upon any condition. It's not a matter of, of what, how you respond to me. If I commit to loving you that way, I'm, I'm making myself vulnerable. I might get taken advantage of. I could easily become overwhelmed or exhausted. It's one-way love. I'm not thinking about me. I'm not worried about my needs. The only way, the only way it's possible to love like that to never worry about taking care of yourself is to know that God is going to take care of you because he is a God of hesed. And this happens everywhere in the story. They come into Bethlehem, we're told, toward the end of chapter 1, and it just so happens, and it's neat the way that the author of this book words things. He says it just so happens that as they enter into Jerusalem, it's the beginning of the barley harvest. Then Ruth goes out to glean in the fields with the other servants, and she just so happened, we're told, to come to the field belonging to Boaz, who is going to be uh, a redeemer toward the end of the story. So multiple times in the story where the text says something like, behold, it happened, or it just so happened, and the language is signaling something. It's telling us that behind the events of this story are, is a God who is always at work. He's always going before us and preparing things. And so our hesed love for one another is sourced in his hesed love for us. Now let's talk about exactly what I mean by that for just a minute. God's love for us is one-way love. It's not dependent upon anything in us, any response from us whatsoever. If you, love, if you ask God, as most wives are wont to do at some time in their marriage to their husbands, God, why do you love me? His answer will always be, I love you because I love you. And that feels unsatisfactory, but it shouldn't be. He loves with no thought for himself. Our theologies and catechisms are clear that God doesn't love us because he needs us to love him back. In the eternal fellowship of the Trinity, the love of the Trinity, God is without need. His love tank is full and it overflows in love for us. He's not on the take. He's not using us for the sake of his own emotional needs. He needs nothing from us. Which means there can only be one explanation for why he would want to be in a relationship with us. He must really enjoy us. He loves from pure commitment. His love is covenantal. He acts towards us on his commitments, not on his feelings. God didn't fall in love with you. That's good news. You know why? Because he didn't fall in love with you, he will never fall out of love with you. He loves you from a place of commitment in covenant. There's no beginning to his love for us. Jeremiah 31, I've loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I continued in my faithfulness to you. Listen, if you're a Christian, there has never been a time, and even stretching back before time into eternity past, not one iota of one second when God did not love you. There's no end to his love. The passage Jonathan read to us earlier, which just is marvelous to me, The Lord says in Isaiah 54, the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love, my hesed there, 
shall not depart from you, and my covenant shall not be removed. God is saying, I'm absolutely committed to you. There's nothing you can do to sway me. I already know all the way to the bottom of you. I know the good. I know the bad. I know the ugly parts. I know the beautiful parts of you. I know you completely, and I love you completely. The world would sooner end than I would stop loving you. Now, is that not the best thing you've ever heard? God is a God of Hesed. And really, you see the Lord's heart towards us here in Ruth's heart, where she turns to her mother-in-law at this, the, the, the pinnacle of this story in verse 17 and expresses her desire to remain committed to her and to go with her. And she says, I will, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people will be my people. And your God shall be my God. And where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me. And worse, if anything, but death parts from you from me. It's absolute devotion and loyalty and commitment. Wherever you're going, I'm going because I'm with you. Whoever your people are, I don't even know them. I've never met them, but they're my people now too because I'm with you. Whatever happens, I'm not leaving because I'm with you. This is why Ruth's words have been used as wedding, in wedding vows and in weddings you know, for centuries because they have that feel. And it's a powerful scene for me. Because part of my story and the wounds my heart carries is a fear of people leaving or giving up on me. And I, if you know me, you know that I can at times be almost neurotic. And so I read this and I think, gosh, could it really be true? And I remember one of the most powerful, uh, I, I, I really am moved by movies and, and stories. And one of the most powerful scenes uh, in, in a recent movie to me was at the end of the last Harry Potter movie where Harry, without spoiler alert, well, not really, I'm not going to do any spoiler alert, but... Harry realizes that, um, that, that he's going to have to die. There's no, way, there's no other way around it. He, there's no, you know, the only way to defeat the enemy is that he give himself up. And so he begins to walk out down the, the, the front steps of Hogwarts. And he's going out to meet Voldemort, his enemy, knowing that, that when he gets there, he's not even going to put up a fight. He's going there to die. And his friends are sitting there on the staircase and Hermione, his friend, has put it together. And there's a place in the scene where he looks at them and, and he basically says, I, I know you know what I've got to do. And Hermione runs over to him and puts her arms around him and she says, I'll go with you. And, and I mean, my, my heart resonates with that. I don't know if yours does. But to have, somebody, to have somebody come alongside of you and say, I know you're going to do something hard. You know what? I'll go with you. And a lot of the pain in my relationships has been because I've looked to Ashley or to friends to meet that need, and I've hoped to hear them say things like Ruth says here to Naomi. My heart is hope for a friend like that, and in many cases God has provided for me, but that's wrong, see, because the love we're all looking for comes from God first, and then the people he's placed in our lives. And Paul Miller, who I mentioned earlier, who wrote a book on Ruth, makes an interesting point. He says most of the commentators believe that Boaz, who shows up later in the story, is the Christ figure in the book. But he says that the real hero, the one who displays God's love and salvation, is not Boaz, it's Ruth, right here. And I'm inclined to agree with him. Ruth binds herself to Naomi. She comes to Naomi and says, Naomi, I know it's going to be hard. I know you're probably going, you know, even if we go to our death, I'm going with you. And in her actions, in her words, we get a glimpse of the way that God has bound himself to us as his people. When God says, I will go with you, where you go, I'll go, where you dwell, I'll dwell, and where you die, I'll die. When, when, you, when the Lord says that to us, you can believe that he means it. Because in the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is exactly what he has done. In Jesus, God has come to dwell where we dwell. In Jesus, he has come to go where we must go. And at the cross, 
Jesus died where we should have died. And so think about the gospel for just one minute. Just think about the gospel and allow, allow these thoughts to, to invade your mind for just a minute. Jesus took upon himself our sin and condemnation. Though he was innocent, he faced God's wrath. And he gives us, he gives us as a result, a sheer gift of his righteousness so that we might experience the love and the blessing of the Father. Can I, there's nothing fair about that. He got all the bad stuff that we deserve and we get all the good stuff that he deserves. That's Hesed. That's the picture of Hesed that should anchor this story in every single one of our stories. And so the gospel of Jesus is the old faithful of Hesed love exploding from eternity past into the world, flowing down through the centuries in acts of love like this one here in the ministry of God's people and his church and will go to the ends of the earth. That's what this story's about. And so the source of Hesed love, the source of all of the loving that we should be doing for one another is found in God's love for us revealed not only in this story but all over the scriptures. But secondly, and, and before I actually get to the second point, I feel like I need to say this because there are a lot of us here uh, who struggle. I'm, I'm not, when I get into what I'm about to say, I don't want you to hear me. This is not codependence. Okay, be careful. This is not codependence. And a lot of us here have a hard time saying no. We're already running around trying to keep everybody happy. And so unless we're careful, this can sound like a justification for what is actually a very unhealthy way to live your life. Codependency is making the other person your life. You source your life in their happiness or their approval. And it's possible to do that. It's possible to do that and then not be bothered by the unevenness of the relationship. And it's what happens in abusive marriages or relationships where there's alcoholism or things like this. It's, it's one-way love. It's uneven. It's one spouse doing all the work and the other spouse doing nothing. But the reason the spouse who's doing everything is okay with it is because they, they have this need to be doing everything. They need to be needed. They need to be the center of the other person's world. And I can't go any further than that. Just know that's not Hesed. And so... If your life energy comes from other people's approval, you won't be doing hesed. But if your life energy comes from God's love, see, from the source, not from the love of people in your life, if you source your life in his hesed love for you, then you'll be a person who does hesed. You'll be completely free from any sense of obligation or inner need, and the result is you'll have the inner strength to do hesed, just like God, who doesn't need us, but loves us. Your life will begin to take the shape of God's life, and that's the second point is the shape of Hesed love and it has a gospel shape to it has a death and resurrection shape to it so just like we read in Philippians 2 that Jesus though he was God took the form of a servant and became nothing and humbled himself became obedient even unto death that Jesus leaves heaven and goes down into suffering and death and we're told therefore because of that movement down into death God has exalted him above every name that in the name of Jesus every knee shall bow you know the verse There's this resurrection. There's a movement down into death and then a resulting resurrection. And that's the shape of Hesed love. A downward movement into death and then an upward movement into resurrection. Now, let me just spell out the details of this for just a minute. What does this downward movement into death look like? How do you know if your life is going down into the death part? How do you know if you're even getting close uh, to to the kind of Hesed love we're talking about here? And the easy answer is this, okay? Very philosophical, very insightful this morning. You know. Right? And those of you who know, you know. You know what I mean. If you're not sure, 
you're probably not there because when you're there, guess what? You know it. But let me take some practical examples from Ruth because I can see that that didn't land on you the way that I thought it would, which means most of us are still unsure. I have three applications, okay, of, of, uh, of the way that you can begin to flesh out what it means to live a life of Hesed. Uh, Hesed lands, Hesed loses, Hesed lasts. So let me just walk through those three together. First, love lands. Remember, Hesed combines love and loyalty. It's a covenantal, it's commitment-oriented, not feeling-oriented. And that means the first thing love does is it commits, it lands. And this really is the power of the gift Ruth gives Naomi through the whole book, but especially here. The best decision for Ruth is to her, for her to go home. It is. She's probably young enough that she can still find a husband and start again. It's the choice that Orpah makes, but not Ruth. Ruth, Ruth decisively, irrevocably sets her love on her mother-in-law. She says to Naomi, I choose you. More than a husband, more than my family, I'm with you. She commits and then the rest of the book is just one example after another of her, of her acting on her commitment. So Hesed is never general. Hesed is always specific and local. Setting your affection on someone means you narrow your life down and become more intentional. It means choosing. You have to look at a person or a group or a church or you know, a team or whatever it might be, and you say, I choose you, which of course means that there are other people that you don't choose, and that's okay. And what you see is one of the barriers to a life of Hesed love like this is to be too spread out relationally. Just like with anything else, you can take on too much. I hear people talk about this all the time. You can take on too much, and as a result, you do none of it well. And I hear people talk about their work that way, and and sometimes strangely in a way that sounds like boasting, but I never hear people talk about relationships that way. Incidentally, it's why we take vows to one another as a church, just like in marriage. The vows... Help us choose one another. Prioritize one another. They help us land. And landing, landing. listen, landing is a downward movement into death. Why? Well, I mean, think about it for a minute. In narrowing your life down and choosing, somebody gets left out. Being more intentional means saying no more generally so you can say yes more specifically. So you can have margin. Which, of course, means having to face the disappointment and the anger of the people you say no to. That's a death. Also, in narrowing your life down, you become more available, actually, not less available. More time, not less time. More inconvenience, not less inconvenience, just on a smaller scale. And so the application for us this morning is we have to land. We have to land. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German pastor and theologian killed uh, by, by Hitler's regime, he wrote a letter from prison to a young couple who was getting married, and he said, it's not your love that sustains the marriage, it's the marriage that sustains your love. That's really good. That's really helpful. It's not your love, it's not your love that sustains the marriage, it's the marriage that sustains your love. So get married. Get married. Marry yourself to a people, to, one, to, one, to another family in your circle of friends. Marry yourself to a neighborhood. Own them. Own their problems. Follow through in your commitments. Allow the weight of their brokenness to come on your life. Land. Secondly, love not only lands, it also loses. Because remember what I've said, Hesed love is uneven. It means that there will be a time, there will be a time or many times when it feels like all, I'm doing all of the giving, that the outflow of my life does not match the inflow. And what bitterness is, bitterness is a weariness. Bitterness is, is a feeling of, of weariness over the unevenness of love. I'm giving, I'm giving, I'm giving, I'm getting nothing in return, and I get angry. 
Well, what's ironic is it's really unbelief because it, it ignores how uneven God's love for me is. My love for others might be uneven, but the unevenness of it is nothing compared to how uneven God's love for me is. Ruth definitely loses. I mean, just think about it for a minute. She loses the chance for a husband. She loses the chance to bear children as far as she knows. She loses comfort. And what does she get? She gets loneliness because, remember, she's a foreigner. She's an outsider. She gets the burden of having to care for an aging parent and, like I said, a mother-in-law to boot. Naomi, Naomi, in return, gets love. She gets help. She gets companionship. Naomi wins. Ruth loses. And what's fascinating is, is if you read the story in detail, Ruth, Ruth gets nothing. She doesn't even get a thank you. They, the, two, the next thing that happens in the story is they journey to Bethlehem. And when they get there, Naomi's pictured as bitter and angry. And as the people of the town start to talk to her and ask her what's happened, with the lady who has just marvelously shown her such love and companionship and commitment, walking on her hip, Naomi says to the people that greet her there, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back with nothing. Nothing. What about Ruth? had to have been a knife in Ruth's heart. But what's fascinating is, is there's no indication that she was upset by it. Despite the bitter pill of Naomi's self-pity, Ruth is unfazed. She just continues to love. That's all she does. She doesn't stop to consider the unevenness of the arrangement. And so the application for us is not only, if love loses, then we have to stop counting. We have to stop keeping score. Hesed doesn't do a cost-benefit analysis of the relationship. It doesn't count the bad in others or the good in itself and weigh them against one another. It's one-way love. It's love that isn't dependent upon a response in the other person. It's love that's not prompted by anything in the other and is not sustained by any thanks or reciprocity whatsoever. Pride will always make you stop and ask, am I winning? Am I winning? How's it going? Am I doing okay? That's the wrong question. In Hesed love, you have to decide ahead of time, I'm going to lose. And the outflow of emotional love and practical help is going to be greater than the inflow, and that's why the first point back there is so important. But thirdly, love lands, love loses, love lasts. Hesed love is love with no exit strategy. Uh, in 1519, just a brief illustration, when Cortez landed in the Yucatan, he told uh, his men they came to conquer. And uh, to prove the point, he told his men as soon as they were on the shore to burn the ships. Now, what was he saying? He's saying, we're not going back. There's no, there's no exit strategy. We're here, guys. There, there's no going back. Either we're going to conquer Mexico or we're going to die trying. Those are the only two options. And in many ways, the way we love one another, love burns the ships. Love burns the ships, and I know there's some of you who are burnt out. You're, you want to quit. You want to give up. It's hard, and just can I be your friend? Don't quit. Don't, don't walk away. Cry out to Jesus for mercy, and he will come, because love lands, love loses, and love laughs, lasts. And that's the movement downward into death. But what the story of Ruth really teaches is that when you follow Jesus down into death for the sake of love, he will come and he will meet you there and he will work a resurrection for you. When you come to the end of your strength, that's where his strength begins because God loves to tell gospel stories. He loves death and resurrection stories and that's what happens to Ruth. At the beginning of the book, she is nothing. She is, she's husbandless, she's childless, she has no hope, no future, no place in the world. But as the story closes, she has a husband, 
She is a child. She's the great-grandmother of the great King David. And 3,000 years later, we're still reading her story. Resurrection. And part of the resurrection, see, if we put ourselves out there in love, part of the resurrection is a community, it's a community of Hesed. So let me close by just describing that, and we need to be done. God's Hesed love for us is like an explosion that sparks Hesed love in Ruth. Then Ruth's love for Naomi sets off a chain reaction. And what happens is in chapter 2, a man named Boaz, a relative of Naomi, he, he sees Ruth out in the field that she's gleaning. It's his field. And, and she, um, word has gotten around about Ruth because when Boaz realizes that it's Ruth, the outsider, and the foreigner who's working in his fields, he begins to conspire to help her. He, he does all these things to make sure she's taken care of. And when she finally confronts him and asks him, why are you doing all of this? Here's his answer. He says, all that you have done for your mother-in-law has been fully told to me how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. See, Ruth's Hesed love for Naomi has made her famous. It's inspired Boaz's Hesed love, and it's Boaz that will orchestrate the resurrection. And so what we're seeing here, which is an explosion of love. It's an explosion of love. Ruth's Hesed has created a community of Hesed. Boaz, the whole town, they all get into the act. And that's the last point of the sermon is just this. You don't find community, you create it through love. Think about it. Think about how this transforms the way you enter a room of strangers. Our instinctive thought is, who do I know? Who am I comfortable with? And and there's nothing wrong with those kinds of questions. But the Jesus questions that create community are, who can I love? Who's left out? So instinctively, we hunt for a church or a community that makes us feel good. And what we do in that process is we're making the quest for community itself idolatry. It's idolatry if I'm looking for the church or the group or the person to be for me what only God can be, if I need to belong. And Paul Miller goes on in his book to say, like all idolatry, it ultimately disappoints us. But if we pursue Hesed love, then wherever we go, we create community. So there they are, the two different formula. Search for community where I'm loved, become disappointed with the community, you know, because they fail to meet my expectations, or I show Hesed love, and what I do through the showing of Hesed love is I actually create the community I'm looking for. And I know this is a big deal. Talked with a lot about you, well, with a lot of you about how hard it is to connect with people and always feeling like an outsider. It's painful and it's scary because the only way to experience the kind of intimacy and belonging that we all need, that we all want, is to commit to doing Hesed. So love first, then you experience community. Love before community, not community before love. So don't go looking for community. Go looking for a way to do Hesed and you'll find it. And that requires an enormous amount of emotional wealth. You can't wait around for somebody to choose you. The way you find the strength you need, again, is to remember that God has chosen you. If your faith is in Jesus, you're not an outsider. Look, we're going to come to this table. And, and at this table, we see that the climax of the story is the birth of a baby boy here in Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of King David. But centuries later, another baby boy would be born in the town of Bethlehem, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And listen to what he said was the reason why he came from John 17. He said, Jesus said, I died and I rose again so that you and I, so that you and I, Jesus wants you and I to enter into the eternal community of the Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if your faith is in Jesus, you are one with God in Christ. You couldn't be more inside. You couldn't be more loved by the one that matters the most. God has set his love on you from before the foundation of the world, and the world would sooner end than that he would stop loving you. 
And that is the power for you and I. Jesus' dying love for me, inspiring my dying love for you, which creates a community of Hesed love that will be the kind of community, the kind of people that can take God's love outside to the city he's called us to and to the ends of the earth. That's the hope that we have as we gather around this table this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you come now and feed us as your people. Thank you for the resources of love that we have in you. That this, this, this moving down into death with you that you call us to, which is hard and it's difficult and it's scary, that we, that we not need fear, that you have gone down before us to meet us there, that when we come down to meet you, you might raise us up, that you might produce and bring a resurrection for us. And so please, Father, where we are scared, where there's unbelief, where there's idolatry, where, where there's bitterness and weariness over the unevenness of love, would you meet us at those places this morning and through our fellowship with you around this table, would you come minister to our hearts, bring a resurrection internally in the recesses of our lives so that your power might be at work among us, that we might land, that we might lose, that we might last and bear fruit that will glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There is a love that will not let you go. So rest your weary soul in him, and then get busy with the work and the love that he has called uh, you to. That is the promise of this benediction, that as he sends us now into the world, uh, that our life will be shaped after his life, that there will be a death and resurrection quality to our life. The reason we can go with courage is because we know uh, that the one who sends us will never let us go. So receive the benediction then. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.